Among his neighbors, there is never a whisper or hint of lack on his part of personal integrity, neighborly kindness, or faithfulness to the great causes whose championship he has assumed. That he is ambitious, none will deny. But the cause of freedom, the welfare of mankind, the elevation of the masses, have never been in the market to be disposed of for the gratification of his personal aspirations. Had he not been ambitious, he would have not succeeded. We do not present Henry Wilson as a perfect man, for he is intensely human, but as an organizer, a peacemaker, a wise counselor, an efficient legislator, a far-seeing statesman, a dutiful son, and a specimen product of American institutions, we trust the reader will find him in the front rank and worthy to wear the honors for which he has been designated. Those are the closing paragraphs of The Life of Henry Wilson, Republican Candidate for Vice President, the 1872 Campaign Biography of Henry Wilson. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. On March 3, 1873, Wilson resigned the seat in the Senate that he had held for nearly 20 years. On the morning of Inauguration Day on March 4th, Wilson and Grant departed from the White House. Wilson, accompanied by Grant's wife, Julia, traveled in a carriage behind the President and arrived at the Capitol at 11.30. Wilson entered the Senate chamber ready to be inaugurated as the 18th Vice President. Behind Wilson entered the Justices of the Supreme Court, and just a few minutes later entered President Grant and other cabinet officials to witness Wilson's swearing-in. Wilson offered a few words about his time in the Senate and was then promptly inaugurated. His first act was to swear in the newly elected senators. When the pomp and circumstance in the Senate concluded, Wilson followed the president to the front of the Capitol at noon to witness the second inauguration of Grant in the cold and harsh weather. Grant took his second oath of office with Henry Wilson by his side. Grant's inaugural speech affirmed his dedication to civil rights, black equality, and his commitment to completing a successful reconstruction. Cold weather suppressed crowds at both the inauguration and the inaugural ball. While the weather didn't affect the swearing-in ceremony too much, the ball was ruined. The glamorous event was held in a large, unheated hall in Judiciary Square, Washington. The racially integrated crowd danced in their long jackets as the musicians struggled to play through the cold. The White House used the event as an example of a newly passed law that required black and white employees be paid equally in the nation's capital. Grant and Wilson arrived at the ball together around 11 and were noted to seem radiant in their positions. 
The tundra-like weather in the hall froze coffee and resulted in the death of a woman. Not long after it began, the celebration was canceled, and the crowd went home. While the inaugural ball was a bust, Wilson and Grant were hopeful they could complete the mission they had been elected to fulfill. At the first women's convention following the inauguration, Susan B. Anthony declared that the United States had its first vice president who supported women's suffrage. Vice presidents were often one of the least busy officers in the government. Besides sitting by in case the president was incapacitated, their only role was to preside over the Senate. While former vice presidents had sat idle in their positions, Wilson got to work. Wilson continued writing his three-volume account of the history of slavery in the United States. In 1871, Wilson hired Reverend Samuel Hunt to assist him in the writing of a series titled The Rise and Fall of the Slave Power in America. Wilson's books were to track slavery from its early days in the 1600s throughout its grip across the government preceding the Civil War. Wilson published the first volume in 1872 and worked feverishly on completing the second and third after being inaugurated. Here is Wilson biographer John L. Myers. Wilson had connections that probably nobody else in the anti-slavery and Republican political circles had. So Wilson had information that nobody else had, and he could get information that nobody else could. It's one of the best sources we have for the anti-slavery movement and, uh, and politically in, into the Civil War. Uh, as I said, Wilson knew the people. He could get the information he wanted. He was capable of making judgments, and he did. Uh, so probably uh, in the early days, uh, he's contributing an awful lot for subsequent historians to look at. Wilson collected the papers and recollections of his former colleagues and sought to create the first well-versed and in-depth history of slavery and the war. Reverend Hunt assisted in the writing and editing. Here again is Professor Joan Wall. What did vice presidents do during this time? They just, you know, they, they just, they gave speeches and maybe wrote some things. And, but Henry Wilson did not just sit back and twiddle his, his fingers and drink whiskey. No, he wrote a three volume history, didn't he? And I'm sure you're, you're gonna tell me about this, it's a history of the rise and fall of the slave power in America. And I mean, it, it, it's today, it's relevant. So that, that was, that's huge. I mean, he, he was really, really important to our history. Because I was writing on Grant's memoirs, I also wanted to write, read Henry Wilson's account of this period. And, it was, I was amazed at how relevant it was to today and how, you know, how that we think of the lost cause as overwhelming everything, but no, there, there was another voice there. There were many other voices in the late 19th century and, and yet the lost cause is remembered and it's 
books and, and speeches and not Henry Wilson, which is, is interesting to me. Wilson presided over every Senate he could and gave dozens of speeches across the North, attending many ceremonial events. After rising from poverty in Farmington to his early days in the shoe business in Massachusetts, and then his great work through the Civil War, Henry Wilson stood at the highest point of distinction he could ever imagine. Wilson used his coveted role to try and unify the fractured Republicans. He made amends with Sumner and pushed his colleagues to reaccept him to the party ranks. Wilson also sent advice to Grant on how the Republicans could be better restored, but the president ignored it, a frequent occurrence in their partnership. Wilson declined his last paycheck in the Senate, insisting it be put towards the national debt, a move that in part restored some of his lost integrity with the public. Though Wilson had lived a successful life, he still struggled to save. The day before the inauguration, Wilson asked Sumner to loan him $100 so he could afford the inaugural festivities, a situation, Sumner remarked, was one that could only happen in America. As Wilson began to feel comfortable in his role, his health would falter. Three months after the inauguration, Wilson was impaired by a stroke. On May 19th, Wilson was away from home when he realized he could not feel or move his face. Wilson corresponded with the also ailing Sumner, keeping him posted on his condition. Wilson's doctor demanded he rest, and Wilson feared his time was expiring. The public was purposely kept in the dark over his health, and even his friends were uninformed of the severity of his illness. Wilson was spotted briefly on May 30th, and newspapers took note of his troubled condition. Despite reports Wilson was struggling, few knew the extent. In June, George Boutwell, who succeeded Wilson's seat in the Senate, wrote to Sumner, quote, I feel that Wilson is in a bad way. There is a disposition to keep him and his condition from the public, which is perhaps more alarming than the facts would prove if known, end quote. Wilson was frantic over the completion of his books and his work as vice president, remarking, quote, What will come of this book and what will become of a thousand things? End quote. Desperate to get help, Wilson went from doctor to doctor in search of guidance, sometimes falling prey to some quack doctors with dubious claims. Wilson felt in good spirits when he received thousands of letters from across the nation hoping he would heal. Wilson felt most joyed by the letters from the South and from his former adversaries, wishing him well. Republicans dismissed Wilson's illness and contended he had a small paralysis that he had almost completely recovered from, an erroneous claim. In July, Wilson was feeling slightly better, attending a temperance barbecue in Natick and traveling with his best friend and former governor, William Clayfin. Throughout the summer, Wilson rested, and by the fall, he felt well enough to get back to writing. Despite feeling good, Wilson's physical condition was awful. All of his friends were saddened to see the state of their former colleague.
The November elections proved to be a failure for Republicans, who had been rocked by Credit Mobilier in the economic depression in 1873. As his uh, first year began, the Great Depression of 1873 struck. And this depression of 1873 was the first of the, the uh, profoundly disruptive industrial depressions that we would face as a country in the late 19th century. And then of course, going into the 20th century, most famously, I think for most people remember in their history books, reading about the depression in the 1930s. But, but this was akin to that. And, and the grant administration, here's the thing, you probably know that two-term presidents usually have fairly successful first terms and lousy second terms. Grant did not escape history in that regard. In November, when the Senate session commenced, Wilson was well enough to preside and was noted to seem in good health. In November and December, Wilson's health improved greatly, and he got back to work, attending events, giving speeches, and writing his books, albeit less intensively than before. On December 25, 1873, Wilson attended the dedication of Morse Institute Library in Natick, accepting the library on behalf of Natick citizens. In January and February, Wilson's health again spiraled, though he was able to attend the National Women's Convention, where he said that he had been in support of women's suffrage for over 20 years, when he realized, quote, his mother, wife, and sisters were as much entitled to suffrage as he was, end quote. In mid-January, Wilson faced a great deal of stress when a brutal fire ravaged downtown Natick, narrowly avoiding Wilson's house. Nearly 20% of Natick's commercial land had been destroyed by the fire. In March, Wilson received word that Sumner's health was fading and his days were numbered. Wilson demanded he rush to Washington to bid his friend a final goodbye. As Wilson's health would be jeopardized if he traveled, his doctors talked him out of it. Wilson was crushed by Sumner's passing on March 11, 1874. After their friendship in their early days in Massachusetts, to Wilson's push for his election to the Senate, and their civil rights partnership throughout the Civil War and Reconstruction, few had a personal and political bond like Wilson and Sumner. Wilson attended Sumner's funeral services and burial. Unable to speak, he delivered a letter which was read honoring Sumner's life at an event in Boston. Around this time, Wilson was informed that Grant had been ill, posing the possibility of a constitutional crisis with the nation's two most powerful in command unable to serve. Though Wilson dismissed Grant's illness as alcoholism, which he claimed was affecting the productivity of the administration. Throughout 1874, newspapers circulated rumors that Wilson had been criticizing Grant and the administration behind the scenes. Charges Wilson publicly denied in an attempt to preserve Republicans' hopes for the midterms. Wilson felt that Grant had not been following his advice and had been neglecting his duties, prompting dysfunction within the executive branch and within Republican ranks. In May, Wilson traveled to the White House to attend the wedding of the president's daughter, Nellie. 
In July, he spent time with the Grants in New Jersey, and in August, traveled by boat from Newport to Martha's Vineyard in Woods Hole. Wilson and Grant stayed in the famous gingerbread cottages on Martha's Vineyard. The cottages were home to a Christian religious community and rejected smoking and drinking, rules Wilson was likely fond of. During the night of their stay, Grant was chastised for smoking a cigar, and when he stepped off the property to continue his intemperance in smoking, he was accidentally locked out after the gates closed at 10 p.m. In the fall, Wilson feared the Republicans were doomed for a great defeat. Party politics rocked Massachusetts as debates flared over who would replace Sumner in the Senate. When the results came in November, Republicans were, as predicted, on the losing end. Wilson had warned Grant and other party leaders of their failings to effectively organize, and Wilson loudly rejected any notion of Grant running for a third term. Wilson and Grant's relationship began to rift. The party that had dominated American politics for nearly two decades was beginning to slip. In the early months of 1875, Wilson's health seemed to almost fully recover as he got back to his ceremonial work and frequently presided over the Senate. Wilson didn't enjoy his presiding role as vice president, complaining he was mostly powerless and had little ability to make change in the Senate and push for the causes he had spent his life working on, saying he wished his term would conclude soon. This is U.S. Senate historian Betty Coed. When the Senate was in session and he was presiding, he was known to be a very even-handed kind of presiding officer, which again is very fitting with his temperament. But most of his vice presidency was, was spent elsewhere. Wilson was happy to see Sumner's civil rights bill pass, despite it being somewhat watered down following the senator's death. Throughout the summer, Wilson felt well-rested and energized, traveling throughout the South and the West, speaking to thousands and inspecting the conditions of black citizens. While in the South, Wilson visited the widows of pre-war presidents and visited the graves of Polk and Taylor, men he had bitterly opposed during their terms. Throughout 1875, Wilson attended many centennial celebrations of the Revolutionary War, giving brief remarks at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. As the elections of 1875 approached, Wilson worked to campaign for Republicans in hopes their losing trend would not continue. Wilson's doctors advised he spend more time resting, though Wilson felt reinvigorated and continued to rally Republicans and complete the writing of his third volume. Around this time, Wilson frequently met with his friend Clara Barton. Barton had spent the past few years in Europe, continuing her service, forming the Red Cross. Upon moving back to the United States, Wilson and Barton were rumored to have engaged in a romantic relationship, even considering marriage. Later accounts by Barton's family noted she had wedding attire ready and was prepared to marry someone around the time Wilson became ill, supposedly sidelining their wedding. It's unclear if Wilson and Barton were actually engaged or if they were simply very close friends. It seems naive to think Wilson would have become so involved in a relationship 
with his health in decline, though Wilson may have been overly naive of his condition. Before the elections, in September, Wilson fell ill, with the doctors noting he, quote, complained of pain in the back of his head and an inability to sleep, end quote. Republican success in the election was measured, and while not stunning, gave Wilson and other Republicans some inspiration for 1876. Wilson had been rumored to be a contender for the presidency, simply smiling when the question was asked in 1874. If he had not had the health problems that he had, uh, he quite likely might well have been the next nominee for president. Um, he, after all, was probably the best known speaker from at least the Civil War until he had a stroke. Uh, he was well known in the country, probably better known than anyone else. He probably gave more political speeches than anyone else in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he was vice president, although in those days, the vice president seldom moved up to the presidency. In the fall of 1875, Wilson began to seriously consider running, seeking the advice of his friends. Despite being on his deathbed a little more than a year before, Wilson felt his health concerns were behind him and he was energized to take on the role. Despite his presidential ambitions, Wilson would not make it to the 1876 election. In fact, he would not make it to the end of 1875. In early November, Wilson's doctor noted he was suffering from, quote, vertigo, thickness of speech, twitching of the facial muscles, irregularity of respiration, irregularity of swallowing, and intense pain in the back of the head and nape of the neck, end quote. Despite the doctor telling him to stay home, Wilson ventured to Washington. On November 10th, Wilson suffered severe back pain and fell unconscious throughout the day. Wilson had a headache and sought the attention of a physician in the Capitol. Wilson took a bath and sought rest in the vice president's office. Wilson rolled his head back and forth and convulsed his arms in severe pain as morphine was administered. Wilson's condition was critical and the president was alerted. A makeshift hospital room was established in the office, and on the 11th, President Grant and many others visited the ailing Wilson. They actually turned the vice president's office into a sick room. They brought a bed in. There was a doctor in attendance much of the time. And over the next 12 days, he lay in the bed in the vice president's office, receiving visitors there. President Grant came to visit him and others. In the coming week, Wilson began to recover rapidly even responding to letters wishing him well. Black churches throughout the capital held services, praying for the vice president's recovery. Since the summer, Wilson had lost about 30 pounds, completely changing his figure. Newspapers extensively reported on Wilson's condition, keeping the concerned nation up to date. Wilson was feeling well enough on November 20th to be interviewed for the New York Times speaking on the recent election results and offering some electoral advice for the Republicans in 1876. Despite feeling better, Wilson woke up at 3 a.m. on November 22nd 
and complained his stomach was hurting. He was awake and alert until 7 a.m. when he rose to take his medicine. When Wilson laid back down, he would never get up again. At 7.20 a.m., Wilson was pronounced dead, and just 40 minutes later, his closest brother Samuel arrived to visit. Henry Wilson, who had been born in a small dirt floor shack in Farmington, New Hampshire, with nothing to his name, died in the office of the Vice President in the United States Capitol, surrounded by honor, prestige, and heroism. So his real mark in capital history as vice president is the fact that he's the only vice president or the only person to die in the Capitol building on the Senate side. I mean, there's the John Quincy Adams died on the House side much earlier. And uh, and also because about 10 years after Wilson's death, the Senate commissioned a marble portrait bust of him, which <clears throat> which stands in the vice president's office to this day. And that was the beginning of an, a major art collection we have in the Capitol building, which becomes the vice presidential bust collection. And so we have a, a marble portrait bust of every vice president who has ever served um, in, the, in and around the Capitol building. And that began with the Wilson bust. So really his mark as vice president more than anything is sort of in a Capitol history way rather than in his role as presiding officer. As soon as Henry Wilson's death was announced, President Grant ordered the White House be draped in black funeral cloths for 30 days, and the government be closed on the day of the funeral. A committee of nine was established to plan the funeral and procession. Wilson's body was moved from the vice president's office to the Capitol Rotunda to lay in state upon Lincoln's catafalque, an honor only bestowed to 34 others throughout the nation's history. Over 25,000 citizens visited as the vice president and hero of the Civil War lay in the Capitol. Wilson's DC funeral was held in the Senate with three African-Americans serving as his pallbearers. In honor, Frederick Douglass noted, was the first in the nation's history for a vice president. Tens of thousands were drawn to the Capitol as his body was moved to a train car for his procession to Massachusetts. Hundreds of thousands crowded the Northeast to see Wilson's train car go by. The train stopped in major cities, including Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York, so that the gathered thousands could pay their respect. In New York City alone, over 200,000 faced the November chill to see Wilson's procession. No person besides Lincoln had been paid such an honor. As Wilson arrived in Worcester, all public activities in Massachusetts halted, including schools, post offices, and custom houses. The governor of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, along with six former governors and countless other prominent men and women, witnessed Wilson's body enter the State House. Following a service in the State House, Wilson's 22nd Regiment accompanied the procession to Natick, where Wilson's private services were held. Family gathered in Wilson's home on West Central Street, 
Before the full service commenced, in the newly built Clark's Block Hall on North Main Street in Natick. The Congregational Church, which was still being rebuilt following the fire, was unable to hold the services. Following the many touching remarks and local tributes from the townspeople, the procession moved to Wilson's final resting place. The grave beside his wife and son is tucked in the corner of Old Del Park Cemetery in Natick. It's humble and wouldn't be noticed if it weren't for a small plaque a few feet away. Wilson's gravestone is small and unnoteworthy, surrounded by stones much larger. Hamilton Wilson's grave is large and ornate, with a hat and sword carved into the rock. Here is Wilson expert Joe Weiss. I think that was it. I think it was a combination of, of course, uh, being a proud father of what his son was able to do in the Civil War and after uh, his service uh, and uh, so forth. And he wanted to um, make sure that that stood out in a dramatic uh, fashion. And yet Wilson himself, even though he had some of these comments and scrapes with others uh, on the Senate floor, uh, being in the waiting room with um, of, uh, outside Lincoln's office, making uh, some comments um, or, or what have you, uh, even to Lincoln. Um, but he did those things not to really focus on himself, but to try to bring forth a policy and positions and, you know, um, principle that needed to be advanced. And so I think he was continuously looking at that and felt that his stone being so much smaller and the kind of, um, you know, I'd rather be known with this small band of, of uh, people who, who uh, follow principle than to have a large stone or a large, you know, reputation for winning wars and doing all kinds of other things. That was, that, that I think was exactly the message he wanted. And of course, uh, that is what you see at Dell Park uh, every you know, at this point. Henry Wilson lived an extraordinary life of service and morality. His life's work was spent fighting for the human rights of all. Wilson pursued principle over party and fought for equal rights. Despite being radical, he was always respected by his friends and foes. Before we close, I want to note that we have one more episode left to examine the end of Reconstruction, the rise of racial violence, and the legacy of Henry Wilson. I want to also encourage you to check out the many images of Wilson's funeral in D.C. and in Natick. Visit henrywilsonhistory.com and enter funeral in the search bar. Today we discussed the inauguration of Wilson and Grant, Wilson's early work as vice president, his sudden and ongoing health issues, and his passing in the U.S. Capitol. Thank you to Professor Joan Waugh for her insight and knowledge on the era. Thank you to Wilson biographer John L. Myers. And thank you to Senate historian Betty Coed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening on. 
Check out henrywilsonhistory.com for more information and to check out the Henry Wilson and the Civil War store, where you can purchase stickers and support the show. If you have any questions or comments, please shoot an email to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to finishing off the life and legacy of Henry Wilson.